Welcome to Fortress on a Hill. I'm Henry. I'm Danny. I'm Kagan. We're three leftist veterans that aim to expose the reality of the U.S. military's multiple wars abroad and to illuminate the damage military service does to Americans. American presidents throughout U.S. history have used American military and diplomatic power to force regime change of democratically elected governments around the world. Most veterans come from families vested in prior service, and American generals choose their own, ensuring diversity of thought never interferes with American warmongering. How can we stand by and do nothing while our military kills and destroys lives the world over, while telling Americans that all this death and destruction protects them from terrorists when nothing could be more false? Fortress on a Hill aims to change that. Scott Horton, welcome to Fortress on a Hill. Thank you for coming to chat with me this evening. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. So Scott is the director of the Libertarian Institute, editorial director of AnyWar.com, host of AnyWar Radio on Pacifica 90.7 FM KPFK in Los Angeles, California, and podcasts The Scott Horton Show from scotthorton.org. He's the author of the 2021 book, the one we're here to talk about today, Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism, the 2017 book, Fool's Aaron, Time to End the War in Afghanistan, and editor of the 2019 book, The Great Ron Paul, The Scott Horton Show Interviews from 2009 to 2019. And he's conducted more than 5,500 interviews since 2003. So Scott, I um, please take a minute for everybody and and tell us about enough already. What um, what was your goals with making this book? Kind of what was the what was the genesis of it? Well, it started because uh, Tom Woods called me and said we should write a book together where we kind of do the dummy, you know, uh, the war on terrorism for dummies. What do you think about that? So I said hell yeah. So I wrote up an outline. Like I don't know exactly. I've been thinking about writing a book for a long time, and I wasn't sure what to say, what to narrow it down to, what the theme to focus on, you know, whatever. But for whatever reason, when he brought that up, I just thought, oh, okay, that'll work. So I just wrote up a quick little summary kind of a thing about it. And, um, you know, he had a literary agent who said that, nah, no one wants that. No one's interested in that kind of thing. So... We were going to maybe get back to it later or something. And then Tom got very busy. He's a very busy guy. And um, so I think I, that was like in 2014 or something. I got tired of waiting on him. I finally went ahead and started it at the beginning of 2016. It took me about a year and a half. And what happened was I got stuck on chapter two, Afghanistan. And by the time I was done with the torture section, I thought, well, I don't know. I mean, this is essentially... I'm not anywhere near done, really, and it's going to be its own book. I just and hell, that's the war that's really still on. Yeah, much more even than Iraq War Three, or I mean, Iraq War Three was still going at that point. But anyway, so Chapter Two became the book about Afghanistan, and it's actually kind of funny. I mean, if you if you care, it's your fault. You asked. Um, what happened was I took my outline and of the original book that I had written. And I gave that to uh, A.J. Van Slyke, who's this brilliant genius, who took my outline and turned it into a PowerPoint presentation, like a really nice looking one and everything. Uh -huh. So then I did that for Renegade University. 
I had done one presentation about Afghanistan, basically going all the way through that book. And then I did the other one on the war on terrorism. Then my wonderful friend, Joanne from Australia, she transcribed the whole thing. It was like a five and a half hour long, ridiculous presentation that I gave. Wow. And she transcribed the whole thing. So then I went back and restored all the missing pieces of chapter one that I had cut out when I wrote the Afghanistan book about the Iranian revolution and the Iran-Iraq war and Iraq war one. I put all that stuff back in <clears throat> for me. And, um, and then, uh, you know, basically just put a hell of an edit on it and, you know, added a thing or two and put it out. So it's the transcript of a talk I gave uh, based on the outline that I wrote for the book that I never got around to writing. So that's how I finally got the thing done. And I hope you like it. <laughs> no, it's been a, uh, a great read and a, a great resource. Um, yeah, there's so many. I just... I. Uh, my Kindle on my desktop today for the first time and I was going through and you can go through by, you know, names in the book, how many times they're named. And so it, it, it really makes going for additional study in whatever subject you want to go after very, very easy and, and almost effortless. Um, so the next thing I wanted to talk to you about was um, pretty, er uh, pretty early in the book, which I, I had um, I had wondered if you were going to include some definitions of, you know, just for the basis of the book about, you know, terrorist acts, um, you know, what, what, what constitutes them, you know, what do, what do you or I as, as anti-war people see it as, and what do larger people, uh, see it as, um, mm -hmm. and you mentioned about that they are, they're violent expressions of powerless people. In, in one way or another. Um, would you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Well, um, I mean, there's a lot of ways to approach this, but one of the things that brought a lot of clarity to me was a discussion that I had on the show with a former CIA counterterrorism analyst named Cynthia Storer. Mm -hmm. And she confirmed to me that what she called the CIA's framework for terrorism, how it develops, you know, who participates in it and what have you. That just has nothing to do with Islam. Muhammad's not on the chart, and it's not because of PC. It's just because that ain't the point. It just never really was the point. And instead, essentially what happens is when people protest and yet have no, you know, uh, have no real voice or, or they're, the people, they're, the power that they're protesting against refuses to hear them, then violence breaks out. And so, and then as she put the worst thing that a tyrant can do in most cases, I guess it depends on, on how badly he, he wins and crushes the rebellion. But essentially if there's a peaceful protest movement, the worst thing a government can do is crack down and crack skulls because that'll turn it violent. And, um, you know, when people feel like they just have no choice, but to uh, openly resist with armed force, even if it's a completely asymmetric fight, you know, civilians against their own government that can crush them. Sure, you know? sure. Um, and it's not always their own government sometimes. Or I mean, sometimes it's foreign governments, but usually it's people's own governments. And then, so that's it. In fact, <clears throat> when uh, the city of Anaheim refused to allow a right-wing group, I don't even know how right-wing, some kind of right-wing group, uh, hold a rally just this week, or maybe it hadn't even happened yet. They're trying to ban it or something. But anyway, um, 
Glenn Greenwald uh, sent out a tweet and pointed out that when you deprive people of the right to protest and make themselves heard and get reforms through democratic processes, then you're just making violence more likely. You know, it's just like, you know, shutting down what's called misinformation about vaccines, say for, you know, argument's sake that it actually is all misinformation. Well, still, you just make it seem like it's the secret hidden truth by banning it. You make it, you know, even more powerful. It's all, you know, backfires kind of thing. So that's basically the deal, right? Osama bin Laden and his men could not get redress from the king of Saudi Arabia or El Presidente Mubarak in uh, Cairo. And so, you know, they came to America who backed them both. And that was really what it was all about, you know? Um, and so, and then the other major lesson about terrorism, and, and just to be real clear, I mean, by terrorism, we do mean, um, as Bill Clinton says, acts of uh, violence and coercion by people who do not have state authority. Uh, so, um, you know, that's, that's right, but it's also, it's meant to create a reaction and, um, you know, um, the great William Norman Grigg quoted Saul Alinsky, the leftist radical who said that in all asymmetric political action, which would include terrorism, that the action is in the reaction of the opposition. So what is it that you're trying to get them to do? So say, for example, to skip ahead, you know, from September 11th, in the middle of Iraq War II, Zarqawi, the leader of Al-Qaeda in Iraq, would have his guys blow up a bunch of Shiite pilgrims, a bunch of innocent civilians at a mosque. And why would they do that? Just, oh, because they're angry, psychopath murderers. Yeah, but no, they're thinking things through. And the purpose of it is, to provoke the Shiites to then, uh, you know, participate in reprisal attacks against other Sunnis. And then that would drive those Sunnis into the ranks of Al-Qaeda and into the insurgency against the Shiites. You know, in other words, it's us or them, and we're going to make you choose by provoking them to attack you, right? And so it's the actions and the reaction of the opposition. In the case of really the entire Al-Qaeda war against the United States throughout the 1990s and up to and including September 11th, the purpose was to provoke America into doing something really stupid. And it doesn't mean that Bush was innocent. It was really the provocation was based on the premise that the American system is a corrupt empire, that they would exploit a massive crisis like a Reichstag fire type of event in order to carry out, you know, their own agendas that they already had in mind. And so uh, if you look at Rolling Stone magazine from 2010, Guy Lawson interviewed Omar bin Laden, one of Osama bin Laden's non-terrorist sons. It was Hamza bin Laden grew up to be the terrorist who supposedly uh, was killed during the Trump years. But anyway, um, the, uh, the non-terrorist son, Omar, told Rolling Stone magazine, he said, I was in Afghanistan in the year 2000 when Bush was elected and my father was so happy. This is the kind of president he needs, one who will attack and break the country. 
and you know waste the money and break the country that was the point he he told me he would do to the americans what he had done to the russians in other words the war that america helped the mujahideen and including the arab afghan army fighters fight in afghanistan against the soviet union in the 1980s that they would replicate that exact same experience with us bog us down bleed us to bankruptcy break the American empire on the rocks of the Afghan mountains, and then finally drive us out the long and the hard way as they did to the Soviet Union. Only then the Al-Qaeda guys believed could they wage their local revolutions without the Americans there to interfere. And so now we're 20 years into essentially the Americans acting along to Osama bin Laden's script. And Yes, they're taking advantage, but that's what he was counting on. The other other part of that that I wanted to to talk about was the um, where the highest incidence of what we could coin terrorist acts um, would take place in terms of um, why the person chose to do it, and that the it primarily because they come from a place where foreign troops are stationed and somehow right. that government is attached to them like we were in Saudi Arabia in the late 90s. Yeah, that's exactly right. In fact, uh, Robert Pape from the University of Chicago started a study with his graduate students. They ended up moving the thing to the Pentagon, I guess, where they count every single individual suicide bomber on Earth since 1980. And what they found was the commonality between them all was not religious belief, even among Muslims the varying degrees of commitment or the various, uh, you know, sects of Islam and all that always varied. And um, in fact, it's, you know, the amateur Muslims who really don't know too much about Islam at all, but who are really immersed in earthly politics are the ones who join up to fight. Now, for bin Laden and them, they were highly educated types, but for most of their followers, no. And you look at the extremist uh, the most extremist sects on the Sunni side, the Wahhabis and the Salafis, who are kind of like fundamentalist back to the olden days types. Well, what percentage of them ever joined the fight? And there are millions of Wahhabis and Salafis. And yet at the height of the Islamic State, there were what, 100,000 men? And that's including all fighters and all members of the Islamic State, including conscripts and just regular Iraqi Sunnis who, you know, was the only way for them to stay paid and survive through you know that side of the war so um you know it it's um and and pay he counted them all up i mean on an individual basis the common overriding factor is the presence of foreign combat troops on home territory and then those are the people who fight so i, I wanted to ask about um kind of the the your view of um, these groups today and kind of where they stand. I, uh, I was fascinated to learn from your book that the Clinton administration had, I think, I think you said 13 opportunities to deal with bin Laden prior to September, prior to the end of the Clinton administration and, and didn't. Um, and the Looming Tower series that uh, was a few years ago on, on Hulu, it kind of gave the, the really stark impression that it was mostly, if not entirely, on the incoming Bush administration that 
eight federal agencies had missed signs of al-Qaeda plots and specifically about September 11th. But your book points out that American acceptance of Islamic fighter proxies in fighting for U.S. interests began a long, long time ago. Yeah. I'm, I'm interested, what are your impressions of how the, these groups have grown and changed since September 11th, um, especially looking at it from a country as America is that, you know, we are, it's not as much as it used to be, but it's still very much us versus the terrorists, you know, if that's the way people are coining it. Um, looking at the long arc of things, what would you say to someone who wants to understand U.S. foreign policy how, how, excuse me, how U.S. foreign policy has relied on these groups, both as foils for our military industrial complex and as proxies for our, against our enemies. Man, I mean, you summed it up perfectly, right? Uh, you know, in the scheme of things, these mercenaries from Saudi Arabia and Egypt, primarily the leaders of Al-Qaeda and, and, and their group, starting... I mean, Jimmy Carter's efforts, I don't know if it really affected the Arab-Afghan army. Probably by the end of Carter. Um, and then it's certainly through Ronald Reagan. And through the Clinton years, even as they were attacking us, from 1990 on, before Clinton was ever sworn in, you know, the first World Trade Center bombing happened when he'd been in power for just a month and a week. You'd think that might have made an impression on him. But his government continued to support the jihadists and their side in the war in Bosnia, Kosovo, and in Chechnya at the same time that they're, you know, attacking the United States over and over again, trying to bog us down and, and provoke America into this war. Um, and so, yes, there's huge responsibility there. The former chief of the CIA's bin Laden unit, Michael Scheuer, said that, um, the, that, they had given bin, that they had given the Clinton administration 10 chances to kill bin Laden. And then there was a Senate report that came out in the Bush years that said that it was 13. And when I asked Scheuer about that, he said that, you know, he, he can confirm 10, but he'd believe it if there were three more, you know, on the military side or something that what his unit wasn't involved in, but that others were. <clears throat> and then, but anyway, so to, just to continue the narrative there, you know, after September 11th, we fought against Al-Qaeda, sort of, in Afghanistan. And then Bush picked a fight in Iraq where he fought on the Shiite side and therefore drove a lot of Sunni insurgents into alliance with Al-Qaeda. And so in that sense, sort of, we're fighting against Al-Qaeda, but an Al-Qaeda that never existed in Iraq before we got there. You know, Zarqawi was hiding with his buddies up in Kurdistan at the time of the invasion. Saddam would have never tolerated their presence. So... That was a completely self-generated front against Al-Qaeda and one that, you know, David Petraeus and the army take credit for the awakening movement in 2007 and eight, where the Sunni Arab insurgency essentially marginalized and turned on the Al-Qaeda guys and stopped attacking the Americans at the same time. But that had begun in, at the very end of 2005 and the beginning of 2006. It wasn't a year before Petraeus, or it was a whole year, I mean, before Petraeus showed up and got at the front of that parade and said that, yeah, no, the only reason the local Iraqis are turning on all these Al-Qaeda guys is because it was my idea. When in fact, the local Iraqis were sick and tired of a bunch of Saudis and Egyptians telling them what to do all the time and decided to start shooting them and turning them into the US to get shot. 
and like they turned over Zarqawi in the summer of 2006, uh, you know, half a year before the start of the surge and the awakening movement. But anyway, this is like a miracle. This should be seen as just an absolute, you know, the, the particular circumstances that led the local Iraqi Sunni insurgent tribal leaders and society leaders to turn on and stab in the back and murder and kill the Al-Qaeda in Iraq guys for us, for the rest of the world, not just for us, but for everybody, was what a great thing to happen. There was no reason that had to happen. You know what I mean? I mean, it just was really a stroke of luck. Um, But then a bunch of those guys went home. And where it really counts here is they went home to Libya and Syria. And then so even at the time where when Obama first came into power, he authorized the CIA. And I think he really meant it. He told the CIA, go to Pakistan with your drones then go to Yemen with your drones. Find real Al Qaeda guys, bin Laden's friends and kill them. I want this thing done. Something that, you know, then had turned west. So Obama said, we're going to hunt down these Al Qaeda leaders in Pakistan and Yemen and kill them. And then, but right as he's doing that, it's in just two years into his presidency, right as he's killing bin Laden in Pakistan, he's taken his side in Libya and in Syria in the dawn of, you know, hijacking the revolutions of the Arab Spring. And who's he siding with? The Libyan Islamic fighting group. Who are they? They're veterans of Al-Qaeda in Iraq from the last war, which, in fact, wasn't even over yet. We still had troops in Iraq till the end of 2011. We're still on the same mission where, you know, 4,000 out of the 4,500 Americans who died in Iraq War II died fighting the Sunni-based insurgency, the worst leading edge of which was Al-Qaeda in Iraq. While our guys are still there for one more year, Obama's already turned around taking Al-Qaeda in Iraq in Libya's side against Gaddafi. And then as soon as they finished that war, and as Ansar al-Sharia and the Al-Qaeda and the Islamic Maghreb were these other groups involved. And as soon as they're done, they take all the guns and the jihadis and start shipping them off to Syria. And of course, that's the real story behind the murder of Ambassador Stevens there was uh, not that, I guess, the limited hangout. They'll admit that, well, he was overseeing uh, and the CIA was overseeing and, and not participating in, but monitoring a Qatari effort to send all these jihadis and guns off to Syria. But we all know it was an American led effort. Seymour Hersh, as he reported, it was David Petraeus's brainchild, that CIA to side with Al-Qaeda in Libya and send them off to Syria. And we know from the London Times or whatever about all the boats full of weapons and, and soldiers, you know, fighters going off there to fight. And then the war in Syria. And I mean, this has been a catastrophe, by the way, in Syria. Now, I don't think the jihadists have really had too much sway in Syria. The um, Islamic State, to jump ahead, the Islamic State had a beachhead in the city of Sirte in 2015 and 16 which didn't last because the Americans and and allied forces in Libya got together. And in fact, former enemy forces in Libya got together uh, with the Americans and and drove them out of there. Um, So jihadist terrorism hasn't been like totally widespread and crazy and horrible in Libya in the time since then. But civil war has between all different armed factions. And uh, and it's still I think there's a, a ceasefire as of this recording, but don't count on that as of the time of this playback. I mean, it's been a catastrophe, you know, this whole time. 
Um, and then, so this was the real story behind the killing of Ambassador Stevens was the Americans had stationed their guy in the middle of a hornet's nest to export hornets off to Syria. But then don't be surprised to get stung. Um, and hornets are worse than wasps, man. I mean, those things are nasty. Anyway, so then the war in Syria, uh, you know, as I mentioned, the war in Iraq was fought for Shiite interests against the Sunni minority, which is what had driven them into the arms of Al-Qaeda. Well, it also was a big, stupid own goal, as they say in soccer, in terms of American power and influence in the region. Because by empowering the Shiites in Iraq, they were empowering the, uh, Iran, their Iranian friends next door. And so the new government in Iraq didn't really need us. They are the super majority, and they had an alliance with their uh, historical allies next door in Iran and the Shiite government there. And so the Americans got marginalized, as I said, kicked out by the end of 2011. Well, even during the Bush administration, they had realized this error and launched what they called the redirection to tilt back to the Sunni kings in order to try to appease them. That was part of what went on in Libya. Now, Gaddafi was not really allies with the Shiites, but the Saudis hated him anyway. And so um, that was part of, you know, our new policy of sucking up to the Saudis in apology for empowering Iran in Iraq War II. And so then the next move there was Damascus. In other words, if we gave Iran's good friends Baghdad under W. Bush, now we'll take Damascus away from them since their ally Bashar al-Assad and his Shiite-aligned Ba'ath Party in Syria's close friends with Iran. We can't reverse Iraq War II and cleanse Baghdad of all the Shiites and give it back to and give power over the country back to the Sunnis. So we'll take for a consolation prize in Baghdad. But in doing so, they revived al-Qaeda in Iraq that the Sunni tribal leaders in Iraq had destroyed and marginalized. Obama came and resuscitated them, gave them a whole new battlefield to fight and billions of dollars, literally billions from the United States, Saudi, Qatar, Jordan, Turkey, and Israel, and weapons, including, you know, tow anti-tank missiles and all of this stuff uh, in order to uh, boost what they called the moderate rebels, the free Syrian army, which was in truth always the al-Nusra front. In other words, which is the association of helpers or assistants or something, but point being al-Qaeda in Iraq, in Syria, that's who they were. And uh, so this support went on, you know, for two years, and, well, and continued on past that, but two years into this support, the Iraqi-dominated faction of al-Qaeda in Iraq decided they wanted to split from the Syrian-dominated faction of al-Qaeda in Iraq um, and in a fight over oil and control, but also because the Americans had killed bin Laden. And Zawahiri didn't command as much respect, at least from the Iraqi-dominated faction there. And their leader, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, disagreed with the al-Qaeda uh, doctrine of continuing to fight the Americans and bog down the Americans until they go home so they can, we can you know, wage our local revolutions and try to create our caliphate then. He said, I, I don't want to wait. I want to create my caliphate now. After all, the Americans are fighting on his side at this point. Why the hell not, right? Yep. So 
he seizes, uh, you know, consolidates a state in eastern Syria and, um, and, you know, with the city of Raqqa as its capital. And then six months later in January of 2014, that's in, in June 2013, then in January 2014, they hoist the black flag over Fallujah and they take it back down. But that's a huge signal that, you know, Sunni Western Iraq is wide open, predominantly Sunni Western Iraq is wide open. The new Shiite government that America put in power in Baghdad is extremely chauvinist. And rather than trying to rule over them with an iron fist, it's basically just cut them loose. And so there's really no one in charge there. And so in 2014, ISIS just rolls right into Western Iraq and they take over Mosul, Tikrit, and uh, Fallujah and Baiji, which is this important oil town. Our podcast is supported in a few different ways. First, there's Patreon where we're blessed to have an array of wonderful supporters helping the guys and I pay for some of the podcast expenses. Those who contribute $10 a month or more will be mentioned right here as an honorary producer, helping keep you, our listeners, stocked with new episodes. But you don't have to contribute $10 a month to help us. For as little as a dollar a month, you can help keep us going, paying for hosting and storage fees, transcribing old and new episodes promoting and expanding the podcast, and more I'm sure I can't think of at the moment. So let's bring out our honorary producers, and they are Will Arends, Fahim Shirazi, James Obar, Adam Bellows, Eric Phillips, Paul Appel, Julie Dupree, Thomas Benson, Janet Hansen, Tristan Oliver, Daniel Fleming, Michael Karen. Zach H., Ren Jacob, Howard Reynolds, Why I Am Anti-War Podcast, Scott Spaulding, Kenneth Cordasco, Corgoth, and the Status Quo Podcast. Your contributions are wonderfully helpful to us. Thank you so much. However, if Patreon isn't your style, you can contribute directly to us through PayPal at paypal.me forward slash fortress on a hill or please check out our awesome store on spreadshirt.com for some great fortress merch the link is in the show notes and now let's get back to the podcast and eventually ramadi it took him a little while to take ramadi um and they consolidate an area in eastern syria and western iraq that's basically the size of great britain and they erased the border that had been there since World War One between Iraq and Syria, which is just big sand berms had been, you know, kind of put up as the border. And they took bulldozers and erased all that and declared the caliphate. And you literally had a guy who was might as well have been bin Laden's little brother or something, his clone up there standing on the balcony like Mussolini at the Grand Mosque in Mosul, declaring that his new name is the Caliph Ibrahim, ruler of the divine Islamic state. And so now this was, this is in 2014 now, summer 2014. This was the most ridiculous war propaganda of the W. Bush years uh, and Osama bin Laden's wildest fantasy come true. There's no way this could ever be. You know, Glenn Beck used to say, oh, the Islamo-fascist caliphate, the Islamo-fascist caliphate. Well, where are you going to put it? 
There's nation states everywhere, the entire Muslim world from Nigeria to the Philippines and, you know, skip a few in there. But, um, you know, uh, there are uh, governments already. Where's the caliphate? Who's the caliph? If there's a caliphate, it's the Saudi kingdom, right? And all their money and control throughout the Sunni uh, Muslim world, their alliance system uh, under American authority there. There's no caliphate. But Bush gave them Western Iraq. And then even when the Iraqi Sunnis took it back from them, Obama gave it back to them, gave them Eastern Syria and gave them Western Iraq. Then they had to launch Iraq War III in the summer of 2014, which lasted through the end of 2017 into Trump's year, you know, first year and through Trump's first year in power there to destroy the Islamic State in Western Iraq and including in Eastern Syria and rousting them out of Raqqa. And so there they were, again allied with Iran's best friends in Iraq, the people they wish they hadn't fought Iraq War II for, the people who they supported these terrorists in order to spite. And now here they are, their spite had blown up so badly in the form of the caliphate. Now here they are fighting on the side of the Iranians and the Shiites in Iraq again, and empowering them even more than before in order to destroy ISIS. And then so now we have troops still in eastern Syria and in western Iraq nominally there to fight what's left of ISIS. And from time to time, especially in Iraq, they do go on missions. Special operations forces do go on missions against what's left of ISIS. Again, al-Qaeda in Iraq, um, in western Iraq. But also, if you listen, what do they say? They're there because of Iran. Iran, which is there to help fight off ISIS, which we built up against them, just like they're in Syria in order to help protect the Syrian state from the terrorists that we'd built up against them there. And so Assad had gone, and, and for that matter, the Baghdad government had gone from friendly with Iran to more dependent on them than ever before. And so the whole thing has completely failed. And the now the total number of bin Ladenite terrorists at the height of this in, say, you know, 2014 and 15 in Iraq and Syria, the absolute highest estimate was like 100,000. If you take into account how many fighters they had in different battle zones at the same time kind of thing. But the official number was actually only 40,000. I think it probably was a little bit worse than that. And the Obama government was playing down how bad it was. But still, again, Almost all those are just local Iraqi fighters on the Sunni insurgency side, broadly defined, rather than true bin Ladenite international terrorists hell-bent for revenge forever kind of thing. So um, now, you know, I don't think you probably want to do a whole, you know, uh, session on the war in Somalia, but suffice to say that al-Shabaab is not the reason for the war in Somalia, it's the result of the war in Somalia from 2001 through 2006. And then al-Shabaab became a problem after that. And now we say, well, we're there to fight al-Shabaab, but al-Shabaab is the result. Um, as, as you said, they're the perfect foil. And then also they make great proxy forces when we want to use them too. We can, we can claim we're there for them, but really now we're there for Iran. Really we're there for whatever it is, for China in the case of the Horn of Africa. You know, um, and uh, and 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 truly, Al Shabaab are not Bin Ladenite international terrorists. I mean, they say so for the Saudi money, but 
the only international attacks they've done over borders is into Kenya and Ethiopia and Uganda. And they're one-off attacks. I don't even know if they've done it in Uganda, certainly in Kenya and Ethiopia, but they're one-off attacks and they're direct tit-for-tat revenge against those troops, violent acts inside Somalia. And so in one case in Kenya, they bombed uh, a bunch of people standing around watching a soccer game on TV. And that was horrible. But what the news left out was the week before, the Kenyan army had bombed an actual soccer game in Somalia and killed a bunch of kids. And so this was direct retaliation for that. Um, and, and, and the worst, like the most ambitious internationalist, uh, you know, ambitious type uh, uh, Al-Shabaab leader in Somalia was a guy named Godain, and he was killed back in 2012. His whole faction, you know, they've been gone this whole time. So, you know, you talk about Boko Haram in Nigeria or Al-Shabaab. A lot of these, now you start to really stress the phraseology that, well, these are Al-Qaeda-linked groups. Now, if you talk about Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula in Yemen, these were guys who, as I said, Obama sent the CIA to start killing them in 2009. They were real-ass Al-Qaeda guys. They had bombed the coal. And they tried to bomb the USS the Sullivans. And they had done, um, well, when Obama started killing them in 09, they hadn't yet. But that Christmas, just a couple, just one month later, really, the, the war started at the very beginning of November, end of October, beginning of November 09. And that December, on Christmas Day, they sent the underpants bomber to try to blow up the plane over Detroit. So these are real. And later they did the printer cartridge plot. They did Charlie Hebdo and a couple of the others. I, I forget if it was Nice or the Eagles of Death Metal concert. One of those massacres in France had come from this same group. Um, that was later on. But so Obama started killing them in 09. But then in order to have the right to kill them, he started bribing the central government to allow him, uh, you know, guns and money to allow him to fight Al Qaeda. And that leader was using his guns and money to pick a fight with his enemies in the north of the country, the Houthis, a group of Shiites. And every time he fought them, they got more and more powerful, just like the more the CIA bombed Al-Qaeda in the south, they got more and more powerful. Um, and there's a lot of double dealing going on there where the leader, Abdullah Saleh, was actually playing a double game against the Americans and backing Al-Qaeda and the Muslim Brotherhood against the Houthis. But then... He was also backing the Houthis against Al-Qaeda and the Muslim Brotherhood and his own army in order to wear his own army out because he didn't want them getting too big for their britches. So the whole thing is a, a complete mess. That might be why he lost against them six times was, you know, a little bit of a modus vivendi type of a thing. Anyway, then the Arab Spring comes and everybody wants him gone. But instead of letting the Yemenis work it out, Hillary Clinton and the Saudis come in and, um, you know, basically prevent new elections from being held or anything like that and install the vice president as president and 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 push abdullah Saleh out of power but um well first of all Saleh, instead of retiring back to mount vernon says you can't fire me i quit screw you and he takes like two-thirds of the military with him and he goes up to the north where he joins forces with the houthis it turns out he's a Zaydi Shiite just like them, even though he's not a part of the Houthi clan. So, which is like a political designation named after this family that kind of leads it. So um, now it's the old dictator in the military allied with his old enemy, the Shiites in the North, 
they come marching down and take over the capital city by the end of 2015, or pardon me, by the end of 2014. Now, here's the thing. Our current Secretary of Defense, General Lloyd Austin, now Secretary Lloyd Austin, he was the general in charge of Central Command. At the time, he was the commander of Central Command. And hang on. And um, he had a deal with the Houthis. Oh, hey, look, a group of Shiites has come to power in the capital city, and they like killing Al-Qaeda guys. No question the Al-Qaeda guys want to kill them all. And so uh, they told the Wall Street Journal and Al-Monitor that they were providing intelligence to the Houthis to use to kill Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. Again, the guys that tried to blow up the plane over Detroit that almost sank the USS Cole, killed 17 sailors in the year 2000. The um, father-in-law of one of the uh, Flight 77 hijackers ran the switchboard house there that helped coordinate the September 11th attack against the US. Just two months later, in March of 2015, Obama stabs the Houthis in the back and takes Al-Qaeda's side against them because Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates were angry that a group of Shiites had taken over the capital city. And so they launched this war. They called it Operation Decisive Storm. It'll be over in a couple of weeks, they said. Well, that was six and a half years ago now, almost. And um, hundreds of thousands of people have been killed. And Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula at times has ruled entire cities, not just towns, but cities and their entire tax bases. They've seized military bases and armories. And um, eventually they had to give up their cities in a deal made with the UAE. And it was funny, the UAE said, yeah, we roused them out. We defeated Al-Qaeda and drove them out. No, they didn't. They integrated them into their armed forces into their uh, mercenary force that they're using into the Houthis. They said, listen, you guys ruling entire cities is making us look really bad. And we don't want the Americans to switch sides again. Okay, so join our group and we'll protect you and we'll fight the Houthis together. And so since 2015, under the Obama government and all through the Trump government and now into the first, you know, the, for the first half year of Joe Biden's government, the United States has been committing high treason on behalf of Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, just like in Syria and in Libya before, um, supporting the Saudi and Qatari war. They call it leading from behind because it's not American jets dropping the bombs, but they are American jets just flown by Saudi princelings. Um, but all the maintenance and all the logistics and all the intelligence and all the everything is done by the Americans for the first few years, all the midair refueling. And I should hasten to add, that unlike all of these wars, which have been absolutely horrible, the wars in Afghanistan and Pakistan, Libya, Syria, and Iraq have been just devastating for these populations. Probably something like 2 million people have been killed. But Yemen is a special case because in Yemen, they are quite deliberately and admittedly deliberately targeting the civilian infrastructure of the country, especially in the north of the country, and bombing you know, markets, bombing the waterworks, the sewage, the electricity, the farms, the irrigation, the grain silos, the flocks of sheep in the fields and the horses in their stables and the fishermen's boats and the, all of the trucks or anything that can be used for distribution of, of food and whatever for the people to survive. And, um, you know, the official number two and a half years ago now was that a quarter of a million people, they said 233,000 people had died, the UN estimate then. 
and uh, you know, guarantee that was low ball estimate then. And I bet you by the time the real excess death rate is calculated, it's going to be more than a million people have died. I've seen the worst cholera outbreaks in recorded history, meaning since World War II at least. And that means worse than what the UN did to the Haitians and worse than what H.W. Bush and Bill Clinton had deliberately inflicted on the Iraqis during Iraq War one and a half in the 1990s. Um, and it's just, it's the most heinous thing happening in the world today. There's nothing worse happening in the world today. And it's all at the hands of the United States against the civilian population in concert with our Saudi and UAE and Al-Qaeda allies there. And it's treason on behalf of literal bin Ladenites. And so just as you said, they make the perfect foil, the perfect excuse, but they also make great proxy forces when you don't want to send boys from Alabama back. You just send in bin Laden's men and to do the dirty work. And it's, you know, I know it sounds crazy. You know, when I talk about Syria and, and Yemen and, and Libya, especially where we're back on the side of the bin Ladenites, but it only makes sense. They hate the Ayatollah more. They hate the Ayatollah more. And any advance of Shiite power to them is worse than the guys who, even the guys who hit the Pentagon. The guys who hit the damn Pentagon are preferable to the guys that, what, took the hostages 40 years ago. I remember I, I was going through notes for the interview and I went back over some from the, the first time you were on the, on the podcast. And I had wrote, written down a note to just to ask Danny, and I think I asked him before we started, but it's like, this sounds like Al-Qaeda, AQAP, are Saudi special forces. How are they different from our special forces teams? If, 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 and they're supported in the same way. It just, it was, it just blew my mind. And I was like, I must not have that. I must have that totally wrong. And I asked him and he's like, yeah, that's basically it. You know, it, 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 it is a little different from that, but that... Those are the those are the, the those are the fighters that we're backing and what they do we are supporting. Yeah, yeah, in a way. I mean, I think they're they're maybe more akin to just low rank mercenary fighters in most of these cases on the ground. But yeah, at the leadership level, they're extremely dangerous men. We've seen them before. So I um I was intrigued to learn something new about uh, the involvement of torture in the war on terror, although not specifically about um, U.S. programs uh, involving it. And it was about the novelty of, um, it was about the novelty of Islamic fighters getting tortured, surviving torture, and then later becoming a higher mm -hmm. figurehead in, in groups. And like uh, Zawahiri was tortured by the jo Jordanians before he became a leader in Al-Qaeda. I think you mentioned that he was a two-bit criminal. Zarqawi. Uh, Zarqawi, yes, Zarqawi. sorry. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that Zawahiri was, was tortured by the Egyptians. So, yeah, same difference. Um, um, but that he, um, that following that, that being tortured and everything that he became much more religious, redevoted himself. Um, and uh, that it, that it was in that, that he grew, he drew a lot more fighters to his cause over time. Um, and that uh, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, um, that he also was the same thing, although he received his torture at Abu Ghraib. Um, so yeah, just more tentacles in the sand. Yeah. Hey, listen, I mean, I don't think you could overstate this, right? Sarkow, first of all, Zawahiri. 
uh, the man who made bin Laden bin Laden, you know, in a way. Zawahiri, who the current leader of Al-Qaeda. Zarqawi, the absolute worst menace of Iraq War II. And it's true, they absolutely built him up way out of proportion to be the boogeyman because he was a foreigner. And they were trying to say all the resistance was foreign terrorists and not indigenous, which is a lie. But still, him and his men did suicide bombings and beheadings and, and you know, killed massive numbers of American troops and Shia civilians and God knows who. Then, you know, they were horrible. And then Baghdadi, the guy that became the Caliph Ibrahim. Uh, as you said, it's uh, John Schwartz uh, showed this in The Intercept by, you know, tracing his prisoner number through that. You know, famously, he was at Camp Buka in, down in Basra. But he was also in Abu Ghraib. And right at the end of 03, beginning of 04, or whenever, no, I guess it would have been beginning and end of 03, uh, during the time that the Abu Ghraib torture pictures were taken. He could be one of the men in those pictures. Uh, but certainly, you know, he was, you know, during, in that prison during that same time period and thus presumably was subject to those same abuses. And by the way, you know, if you read the Seymour Hirsch about this, not, you know, the worst stuff was never released. There's video of the Americans standing by laughing while Iraqi soldiers rape a young boy in front of his mother and, and way worse, you know, murders and, 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 you know, um, the, uh, the senators who saw it were, you know, reportedly white as a ghost and all of that stuff. So, you know, only, only, you know, some small portion of the, um, torture photos and videos wherever i guess none of the videos were made public um the abu Ghraib stuff never mind the cia stuff and the courts have said listen we're going to keep this secret because why because it'll provoke terrorism right because if people see this they'll want to suicide bomb us right because that's what makes people into terrorists torturing them and in fact you know i talked with tony camarino who was he wrote a book under the name Matthew Alexander um, was his, you know, pseudonym at the time. Um, but he was uh, an important interrogator, I think U.S. Army interrogator in Iraq War II. And he was the guy who convinced the, the local Sunnis to turn over Zarqawi and get him. And um, he, you know, it was essentially up to his discretion if he wanted to torture people or not. And he didn't. Instead, he treated him with respect and like, hey, buddy, you want a cigarette? and whatever, try to get along with them and talk to them that way. And, you know, guys would pick on him and, you know, but he got results. And he said that all the foreign fighters that he interrogated who had come to Iraq to fight against the Americans, the Libyans, the Syrians, the Saudis, etc., they all said they were there because of the Abu Ghraib pictures. They saw that and they said, you know what, we're going to go and help and defend the people of Iraq. And you know, the same as you and I would do for the Canadians. If somebody was torturing them, we'd go help. Absolutely. Uh, same sort of situation, you know, if you if you draw the parallel. That was what it was. You know, quantifiably, I think he said all of them. Like, that was what they said. It was the torture pictures. You invade the country. That's really bad. You talk all this stuff about helping people and whatever, I guess. I don't know. I'll sit around and wait. But no, now you're torturing people? No, that's not help. No. Now you got to fight on your hands. Simple as that. And again, it can't be reiterated enough, right? Zarqawi and Baghdadi, all three tortured by 
the you know American sock puppet dictatorships in Egypt and Jordan or by the Americans themselves in Abu Ghraib, maybe with some help from their Israeli contractor friends in the Abu Ghraib prison. This is where our worst terrorist enemies come from. That's yeah, a hard it's a hard truth to to think about. But once once you understand enough of the history, there's no other conclusion. Yeah. Hey, so. what would you do if they tortured you? What would you do if they tortured your family members? Oh, yeah. Right. Be That's it. What would any red blooded human man do? He would go to war. That's how it works. It's what you do. Yeah. You know, someone comes to your town, killing people, abducting people and torturing them. Well. I guess we're going to die fighting then, right? That's how people behave. Look at how we behave. They knock our towers down. We kill 2 million people who didn't do it. How do you like that? That's how we'll react when you mess with us. But we should expect that other people, when we mess with them, that they'll just learn the lesson that they better not ever mess with us. Come on, that's not how it works. Why should that be how it works? You know? Um... Somewhat keeping with what we're talking about right now, I wanted to ask you, what do you think there will ever come a time when the U.S. attempts to actually make reparations for any of the things we've done? Mm-hmm. And any idea with, you know, I, I'm, I'm guessing it won't happen. And if it ever does, it will be a pittance. It will be the, the you know, we gave you this and gave you that. Leave it alone now. And it. it yeah, I don't think at all. Listen, I mean, so I hate to say it, but I think the best hope that we have going is like this, you know, pretty mean kind of cynical right wing take. If you remember back to August of 2013, the narrative from Breitbart, you know, under the influence of Stephen Bannon, I guess at the time was, and, and this prevailed on the right and thank God it did. But the story was, screw the Syrians. We don't care if Bashar al-Assad poison gasses them all. We are not willing to go help anyone anymore. And it's like, well, look, the Americans are the ones backing the al-Qaeda terrorists there. This sarin gas attack is an obvious hoax and a fraud to, you know, between Turkey and al-Qaeda, it turned out, but obviously by al-Qaeda, at least at the time, to try to lure us into fighting that war overtly on their behalf. And, you know, if if anything, the government of Syria was defending the people of Syria from this foreign invasion, this mercenary terrorist group backed by the American world empire and its satellite states in the region. Um, But it helped stop the war, right? I mean, you had the entire all the talk radio and all of, you know, Republican House uh, membership. So we don't want to do this. And it was, you know, it's like, it's America first. You know, that comes from Defend America First by Garrett Garrett. You know, they say that our front line is in France, but I'm not sure that that's really right. You know, since when is France our frontier? You know, our job is defending America first. So, but that's not supposed to be like, when America first, like we push everybody out of the line and we get to go first at the thing. You know what I mean? It's not supposed to be that. We're even that we're so exceptional. We're even more exceptional than Bush said. He said we, we're so exceptional. We can go around the world and kill anyone we want. Well, we think we're so exceptional that we're not going to bother killing you for your own good. 
which is even more exceptional than that, you know, which, you know, like really that the whole rest of the world can go to hell instead of we don't have a fight with the rest of the world. The rest of the world is just humanity. These are our people, man. What are we talking about? Why should we have to fight with anyone? Spin the globe. We're friends with everybody. You know, our worst adversaries, the Chinese are our second biggest trading partner. Yep. You know, and despite all of the trash they talk, we have nothing but common interests with Russia, who have absolutely no designs on Eastern Europe or any of the propaganda that you hear. All of that's a farce. Um, every power in Europe, all the way from, you know, from Portugal to the Russian border are our allies. And other than Ukraine, including in our NATO military alliance, right up, including the Baltic states. Um, there are no powers in Africa. Strongest power in Africa is Egypt. And they've been under America's thumb for 40 years and more, you know, 45 years. Um, the uh, in Latin America, there's no power. The only marginal power in Latin America would be Brazil. But you think they have inter internationalist designs? bent on you know thwarting america in any way whatsoever of course not uh, you know they hide behind their protective barriers and and you know have their own little you know system in one country they don't they don't have a blue water navy they're not picking a fight with anybody and then you know in the east of course we could have peace with north korea tomorrow if we wanted it uh we're friends with the japanese since you know for the last 75 years or 80 years whatever it is now i've lost count um, and, and China is no real threat. I mean, they're probably a threat to Taiwan, but then again, that's sort of an internal matter. And Taiwan is certainly no treaty ally of America, nor should they be, nor are they any, you know, primary American interest. The idea that Japan is going to, I mean, that, that China is going to attack Japan and that we would have to defend our friends in Japan. That's not going to happen in a hundred years. I mean, they don't have anything to fight about. I guess they could get in a big honor code fight and start insulting each other's moms and still until, you know, bombs start going off. But there's no reason to believe that, you know, we're headed down that path in any way whatsoever. They're strong enough powers to fight against each other, I guess. They don't have anything to fight about other than old hard feelings from a long time ago in the last century. Um, and then that's it. That's it. India, they got nukes, but they're our friends. And they, you know, certainly they don't have the the um, the uh, power or ability or wealth to, you know, be an expansionist power in any way. Try to build up a naval fleet to to compete against ours or or to, you know, start intimidating their neighbors or anything like that. No one thinks that that's what the Indians are doing. And then that's it. Who's next? The lost continent of Atlantis. We're out. That's that we're out of land masses. Where organized humanity can do things. Oh, Australia. That's, you know, England Jr., England's stepson or whatever. That, that does, yeah, they're, they're in the Anglosphere, Commonwealth, you know, sort of, kind of, including the United States, along with, uh, you know, New Zealand and Canada and, and Great Britain and their territories. So that's it. As Ron Paul said, we could defend this country with a couple of good submarines. And that's a little bit flippant, but no, not really. You know, there's this presumption that it's a dangerous world out there, but only because we make it that way. You know, the 21st century didn't have to be this way at all. It just didn't. Well, um, I think this is a, a really good spot for us to wrap up, Scott. Um, I want to thank you for 
coming to chat with me about this. It's it's uh, it's been really illuminating, even even reading through your book. Um, and I will make sure we've got a good link for people to to grab it up if they haven't already in the show notes. There's anything uh, you'd like to add before we uh, we close out? Uh, no, just uh, everybody keep your eyes on antiwar.com. That's the most important project on the internet. I'm really proud to be a part of it, and um, got a lot of great uh, writers and uh, podcasts and everything going on. Also at the Libertarian Institute. And then, yeah, I hope people uh, read the book and enjoy it. I've gotten a lot of good reactions from it so far, so I guess we'll see. Yeah, no, it's been a it's been a wonderful resource, and and just to to uh, emphasize, um, anywar.com is is usually my one stop shopping for anti imperialism anything. That's why I start I start there, and it usually gives me good directions if I can't find it there. But usually I can find it right there. It's all right. all in one place, and I, I love yeah. and that. including Danny Sherson, the great Danny Sherson is our regular contributor there as well. The uh, the great Danny Sherson. Um, I especially love that you guys keep track of local news happening in places where we have been. So in mm -hmm. terms of you know what's happening in Iraq right now, and 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 being able to connect with that a little bit, I, I really appreciate that. So cool, man. Very glad to hear that. All right. Well, thanks for uh, coming to chat with me, Scott. You Absolutely. Thanks for having me. We're on Twitter at Fortress on a Hill and also at Facebook.com at Fortress on a Hill. You can find our main blog page and our full collection of episodes at www.fortressonahill.com. iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Patreon, Spotify. You name it, almost anywhere you listen, we're already waiting for you. And hey, we're always in the market for more Patreon supporters. Please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com. And if you're not into giving us a monthly payment, think about giving us a couple bucks on PayPal. The link is in the show notes. Skepticism is one's best armor. Never forget. And listen we'll see you next time. to my song. I hope you'll pay attention. I will not be. De-